in my junior year of high school at a summer camp, I sat with my friend Jimmy as he confessed to me in tears that he struggled with same-sex attraction. Ever since the fourth grade, he had noticed that he was attracted to other guys. He had pushed it down for years, hoping that it would just go away over time. But in fact, the opposite happened. Over the years, Jimmy's infatuation with men only, had only grown, along with the confusion and self-hatred that came with it. Being raised in the church, Jimmy knew that his attractions toward men were not what God had designed in the garden when he made uh, men and women. And he knew that indulging in relations with other men was not pleasing to God, so he hid it. And he just felt dirty. He felt ashamed. On the outside, he was so good at pretending to be good He was good at pretending to be an obedient Christian, but on the inside, his soul was rotting as he indulged in secret sin, in the lusts of his mind, and despite feeling so messed up and lonely and dirty and hated by God, he swore that he would never tell anyone. He just couldn't. He didn't understand why God would allow him to be messed up in this way, and his heart was bitter toward him. In the eighth grade, Jimmy heard the gospel preached for the first time. He heard the good news that though all people had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that God himself had sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, to die a perfectly satisfactory death, and rise from the dead so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life with God. And God worked in his heart as he heard the gospel to show him the righteousness and goodness of God, the love and forgiveness shown in Jesus Christ, and the call to repent of his sins, trust in Christ as his Savior, and submit to him as Lord. As Jimmy reflected on his struggle in light of Christ, he realized that because Christ lived and died and rose again, On his behalf, he could have the righteousness that Christ earned and not have have to be defined by his sexuality. He experienced the freedom of living in submission to God and for the purpose of honoring God and not himself. He was free. But over time, Jimmy began to realize how hard a life of constant self-denial truly was. He realized that his temptations to be with men, though they diminished and didn't have power over him anymore, still plagued him. And the constant battle with those desires became discouraging and debilitating as he was plagued by the thought, why would God make me like this? And it was because of that confusion and that discouragement that we were sitting there at that table in the middle of the woods, crying with one another, lamenting the brokenness of sin, and asking God for strength to be faithful to Him through it. If you were Jimmy's friend, how would you care for him? If you were Jimmy himself, How would you process the confusion and discouragement of a constant battle with sin? How would you talk to God? Of course, I I asked if I could share this story in my message, and of course, his real name is not actually Jimmy. But I, I share this story because in our passage today, um, we are going to be given insights straight into the mind of a sufferer just like Jimmy who cannot make sense of his life. Job, because we're in the book of Job, in the midst of his suffering, is at war in his own mind and at war with his friends and seemingly at war with God. And this passage has much to teach us about how not to talk to others when when life doesn't make sense how not to talk to God when life doesn't make sense, but also how to talk to God when life doesn't make sense. And we need to listen to this passage because all of us either are going to suffer or we will be caring for someone who suffers just like Jimmy and just like Job. 
and we're going to need to know what to say and what not to say to both others and to God when tides of sorrows rise. So let me pray again for us as we go to the Word. Father, speak to us um, through Job. Help us to see clearly um, from your word truth and help us to be or help help us to apply it to our lives as we both suffer suffer alongside people who hurt and suffer ourselves. Make us faithful, Father, by your word. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, look at Job 13. We're going to read the uh, we're eventually we'll get through the whole thing, but um, because it's a long passage, I'm not going to read it all for us, but we're just going to walk through it as we go through the sermon. So starting in Job 13:1. So last week, Eric preached from chapters four and five and showed us what not to say to Christians when they suffer. He showed us how unkind and unhelpful Eliphaz's words were for Job and his suffering. So if you remember, um, in, verse, in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz insists that those who sow evil reap it. And so when Job loses all of his belongings, when he loses his family, when he loses his servants, when he loses all of his wealth, when he loses his, his physical health, Eliphaz concludes that Job suffers this because God is disciplining him so that he would seek God. This idea is called retributive justice. The idea that God punishes sinners for sin. And this justice leads Eliphaz to argue backwards. If Job is suffering, that means God is punishing him for sin. So though it may be true that sin deserves punishment from God, Eliphaz wrongly applies this truth to Job backwards. The truth is that just because you suffer doesn't mean that you're suffering because of your sin. But Eliphaz makes this wrong conclusion. This is what I'm going to call both or Job's friends, or this is what I'm going to call cookie-cutter theology. Cookie-cutter theology. It's their simplistic understanding of God's justice and how he operates with regards to sinners and sufferers. And the, I guess the image that you could use to help you remember this is, is like a, a simple machine. You press the button, you press the sin button, and the hammer comes flying down on you. Press the button, the hammer comes down. That's retributive justice. In chapter 6, though, right after Eliphaz makes that that accusation. Job resists. He insists that he has not sinned, and Eliphaz has treated his suffering as the platform for an academic discourse on sin and suffering, rather than coming alongside him and caring for him in his pain. And in chapter 7, Job begs God to just put him out of his misery and leave him alone. In chapter 8, Job's other friends do not make it any better for him. We've seen Eliphaz's example already of his response to Job, but Job's other friends are no better. And Job only is going to get more and more desperate, more and more emotional, and his words get more and more dangerous as he laments, as his lament turns to complaining and venting. In chapter 8, Bildad, Job's, uh, Job's second friend, he jumps in and attacks Job's integrity, calling him a liar for claiming that he is blameless. He says that if he would just repent of his sins against God, then God would just restore him. Then to top off this round of accusations and bad counsel, Zophar, the third friend, jumps in and says that Job is actually suffering less punishment than he really deserves. He's lost everything, and Zophar has the audacity to say that he is suffering less than he deserves. Zophar claims that Job can't claim to know the things of God, even though Zophar can, apparently, and that if he would just repent, then God would restore him. Instead of coming alongside Job in his suffering and doing the things that Eric has been encouraging us in, like expressing our solidarity with our friends and care by being present and being silent, like not presuming that we have all the answers to suffering, Instead, Job's friends go on attack mode. They seek to correct Job rather than caring for him. 
And Job in chapters 12 and 13, as we get nearer to our passage, has, he has some stuff to say about that. In chapter 12, he snarkily rebukes his friends for not seeing God's terrifying and destructive power that even plants and animals can see. They have thought of themselves too highly, and if they truly knew God, then they would tremble in fear. And then we get to our passage in chapter 13. On the backdrop of of Job's friend's bad, bad counsel, he says this, Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Both Job and his friends know that God is sovereign. Job is not inferior to his friends in that respect. He is equally as knowledgeable about God's character and ways as they are. But his friends' words have implicitly communicated that they think they are wiser than him. By using truths about God to rebuke him harshly, they have stated that Job has some sort of deficit theology which is not allowing him to rightly understand his situation and repent to God. But it's just not the case. Job is not inferior to them, and now he's reached his breaking point. He's desperate, and he must argue with his case against his friends and with God. He's ready to take God to court in verse 3. In chapter 9, just a few chapters earlier, he said that this wasn't possible. It wouldn't be possible for him to go to court with God. But now, something has changed. Job's desperation is so urgent and his agony is so deep that he is even willing to question the God of the universe. We're going to dig into that more in the second point. But he continues on in verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Job's friends have unfairly judged Job as a sinner, and they try and use their cookie-cutter theology to silence and rebuke Job. But Job makes it very clear that they are terrible comforters. Whitewashing here implies this act of trying to paint over cracks and blemishes to make something look pretty. It's an attempt to preserve their theology of God as they try and neatly explain away all of Job's suffering by saying that he's just getting punished for sin. But by their inability to handle the hard reality that God doesn't fit into their cookie-cutter theology, they have proved themselves to be worthless friends. It would be better for all three of them to just stay quiet. That would be their wisdom. If they can't say anything rightly applied, then they just shouldn't say anything at all. See what Job says in verse 6. He continues, Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when He searches you out? Or can you deceive Him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you, if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you, and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Job accuses his friends of pridefully speaking on behalf of God. And he exposes the foolishness of his friend's harsh words by saying, Don't you see how dangerous of a situation you are putting yourselves in? How dangerous and foolish it is when you act as if you can speak on behalf of God, but then just straight up misrepresent him. God will rebuke you. You cannot deceive him. And then in verse 12, in powerful, biting imagery, Job derides his friend's speech. Your words and wisdom are so faulty and so worthless that they are like insubstantial dust that is just blown away. Your defenses for God are flimsy, fragile arguments that crack like common clay. In summary, from the first 12 verses of this passage, Job's friends have clearly failed to be good friends. They try and they speak as if they know the sovereign will of God 
and as if they can explain everything about Job's suffering and what he needs to do in response. And you and I also will fail to be faithful, kind, or helpful Christian brothers or sisters if you try and turn the suffering of your friends into a theological exercise. You do not know what God's sovereign will is in someone's suffering. So do not claim that you can know. Do not try and give people neat answers when they suffer. You misrepresent God, just like Job's friends when you give counsel that says, this is just what God is doing in your suffering. You are, you're just, he's just trying to make you better. He's trying to do this. He's trying to do this. We are not sovereign. We are not God. We do not know, so do not act as if you do. Now, the more serious thing that Job realizes in verse 11 about his friends is that by being so quick to represent God, Job's friends prove that they don't take God's sovereignty seriously at all. God's majesty displayed in his sovereign power should terrify them. They should have felt their inadequacy to make judgments on the lives of other people on behalf of God. But instead... They are quick to talk over Job instead of just coming alongside him and mourning with him and pointing him to trust and hope in God even when life doesn't make sense. Do you see yourself in this example in Job's friends? It is so, so prideful to try and give your hurting friends an answer for their suffering, even if you mean well. When you say everything happens for a reason, or God is just trying to teach and sanctify you through this, God is doing this so that you become more patient or more loving or more kind, God is putting you through this in your life because you need to repent of some sin, etc. When you say these things, even if they are true, you are forcing God into a theological box and acting as if you share divine knowledge with Him. You are saying, I have insight into the mind of God that you don't, so let me tell you what God is saying. Such a a pseudo-prophetic language is offensive to God, and it's language that God rebukes. See verse 10. When your friends suffer, they are not inferior to you. And in the, in, back in chapter 12, if we could have read it, Job, we would have seen Job make this very astute evaluation of counselors who stand in judgment over those who suffer. Let me just read verse 5. He says, In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. Job, in, 12, in chapter 12, verse 5, to say it another way, is saying, When your life is good, And when life is easy for you, you will just naturally judge and be impatient with those who suffer. When life is easy, pride and selfishness and self-centeredness will just lead you to look at the sufferings of others and say, you just need to get over it. Just suck it up. You're so weak. Even if you don't vocalize that, it's implicit. Or God is, God is just doing this in your life, so he's trying to tell you this. It's just the natural bent of our hearts. But in contrast to Job's friends, we should be quick to say, I am not God. I don't know what God is doing. But I'm here to stick it out with you and remind you of what is true about God. And we're going to cling to God together. Can you do that for your friends? Even when you don't understand his ways. Please do not try and play the part of sovereign God by giving trite answers to suffering. Consider how hurtful or or unhelpful this could be for Jimmy. When Jimmy is discouraged in his fight with lusting after people in his mind. Imagine how hurtful it would be for me to say to him, if you just repented of your same-sex attraction, God would just make the fight easy. 
God is just putting this in your life so, so that you see how much of a sinner you are. You just need to stop relying on your own strength and just rely on God more. Some of those things may be truth in some way, but they aren't complete, nor are they helpful. It is much more loving and honoring to God and encouraging for me to come alongside him and remind him of the nearness and love of Christ who has forgiven him and cleansed him of sin, even by showing him my own nearness. Are you prepared to not hit your friends over the head with theological answers, even if they are true when they suffer? Let's move on. After addressing his bad friends, Job gets ready to talk to God. So let's look at at verses 13 through 20. And our second point, sorry, I totally forgot to say that that was the first point. The second point is how not to talk to God when life doesn't make sense. How not to talk to God when life doesn't make sense. Let's read all of verses 13 through 19. Job says, let me have silence and I will speak. In other words, shut up, let me speak, and let come on me what may. What, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there that, who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. At this point of the discourse, Job's lamenting, which started off so well, turns very quickly to sour venting. He's starting to slip down the slope of, uh, into unfaithfulness to God and his words. Job says, everyone, just shut up. Please, be quiet. It's my turn to talk. Is that honoring to God? As we continue in this discourse, we have to be very careful about the ways that Job is an example to us, either is, is an example to us to follow or one to deny. And here, because Job's suffering is disproportionate to his sin, because he hasn't sinned but is experiencing suffering, he is so desperate to be right before his friends and before God that Job is straight up ready to barge into heaven and accuse God, come what may. I think verse 14 means, I'm going to bite my tongue, just grin and bear it, and take my life into my own hands. That is craziness. Verse 15 only adds to his recklessness. What looks like a bold statement of faith at face value is actually an expression. Oh my gosh, sorry. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, one more. Verse 15. In essence, here he's saying, God may just straight up kill me for this. And I'm going to wait on him. I'm going to wait. But I'm going to argue with God. What is translated here as hope shows that Job recognizes God's sovereignty and his control and his responsibility to act. God is in control and he's the one who's going to resolve his problems. That's a good thing. Job turns away from the faulty wisdom of the counselors, of his bad friends, and he turns to God, who has the real answers. God, who can actually give the answers he's looking for. This is good. That's good. He puts his hope not in man, but in God. But the way that he's going about it is dangerous. And Job knows very well that God could just kill him. He has the power and the authority to just strike him dead. But... He's still going to argue with him. What Job gets right here is that he doesn't reject God. And we'll touch on that in point three. But what is wrong is his insistence on having an audience with God so that he can just set God straight. 
When he says, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him, he's saying, I know that godless people cannot stand in the presence of God and live. So I will stand in God's presence and prove that I am innocent, and that will be my salvation. He is set on justifying himself before God. He insists on proving that he has no sin. And here we see, very interestingly, that Job actually has the same exact theology as as his friends. His friends think about retributive justice positively. They say, because you are a sinner, you suffer. You press the sin button and the hammer will come flying down to bonk you. But Job also shows that he believes in that same justice, just in a negative sense. He says, because I am righteous, I shouldn't suffer. He says, I don't press the sin button, so the hammer shouldn't come flying down on me. But I hope that you're starting to catch on that life just isn't that simple. It is not so simple. Life in a sin-tainted world under a sovereign God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts is not so simple and easily understood. But Job himself does not understand. The only difference between Job and his friends with regards to their theology is that Job has lost everything and is in pain and it's driving him into recklessness. In part one, we saw Job's friends clearly or speak too tritely about Job's suffering, even though it is clear that they don't know what God is up to. But neither does Job. Job doesn't know what God is doing in his suffering either. And in insisting that Job can justify himself before God, Job is presuming that he has more knowledge about his own suffering than even God does. He's saying that God is ignorant of how much he is hurting and therefore he needs to change to help him. Sometimes sufferers presume that we know more about reality than God himself, which causes us to be sinfully self-justifying and sinful in the way that we talk to God. We think, God can't understand what I'm going through. God is too big and too dangerous and too aloof that, and, and not loving enough to see that he's hurting me. So I have to go fix him. Job is an example of how crying out to God can go wrong. He goes to God to yell and vent and accuse him and he ends up attributing his suffering to God's character. That's a big no. God, in his omniscience, knows that Job is righteous. Job does not need to go and vindicate himself before God. He's already vindicated. But Job makes two mistakes. He assumes, one, that God doesn't know when he feels wronged, and that God is unjust in making him suffer even though he is sinless. And his second mistake is that he insists on being self-justified so that he can be right before his friends. And in his pursuit of self-justification, Job loses sight of God. He becomes utilitarian in his approach to God, saying, I will use God for the means of removing my pain and proving that I'm right. I'm sure that there aren't many situations in your own life when you need to prove your blamelessness to your friends. But on the other hand, there are plenty and plenty of situations where you feel that God is being unfair for allowing you to go through hard things. There are plenty of situations when we come to the conclusion that God is being unfair and when we go to Him in prayer or reading our Bibles just to get our pain taken away. Please hear me, it's not a bad thing to ask God for help and healing. We should be doing that constantly no matter what. But remember, God in His sovereignty is juggling so many more things than we can know at at once. He is in control. He is purposeful. He is good. Juggling really isn't even the right word. He has it down. God doesn't leave, or please don't leave those presuppositions when you struggle through suffering. So when Job says, I didn't do wrong, so I shouldn't suffer, God says, yes, you are right, but I am more right and you can trust me. 
Sometimes we must suffer because God in his wisdom ordains it, no matter if we are righteous or not. And there will be many seasons in our lives when God allows us to go through hard things, not because we sin, but because God has higher purpose in it, because God loves us. And so in those seasons, in contrast to Job, put your hope in God and not in your self-justification. When you suffer disproportionately to your sin and when God seems unfair, go to Him. Put your hope in Him. Don't make the mistake that Job makes in his pain that God doesn't understand because He does. God knows your pain very intimately. And we have proof of that because he says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do, or Paul says, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God knows what you go through. And because of his intimate knowledge of your suffering, plus his sovereign care, to order all things for your good if you are in Christ, plus his perfect love for you that seeks your highest good, you can trust him. You can truly hope in him and not in yourself. You can truly and patiently wait on him. So yes, when you talk to God, go to him, be honest with him, but watch your words. Be unqualified, pour out your heart, but don't go unchecked. There's a difference between lamenting to God, honestly laying out the cares of your heart in a way that's, that helps you hope in Him, versus venting, which looks more like angrily yelling at God and spouting whatever you think and whatever you feel without reverence or care for Him. And that leads us to our last point, what it looks like to talk to God even when life doesn't make sense. How to talk to God even when life doesn't makes sense. Let's read on from verse 20. Job says, turning to God, he says this, only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer. Let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a, dry, a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. In verses 20 through 27, Job turns to talk to God in prayer. And I know that this point is how to talk to God. But first, Job's words here are not a perfect model for us. Here's a few things that he gets wrong. In verses 20 through 22, he sets conditions for God. Do this, he says, and I won't hide from you. Stop torturing me and stop being scary and I will not avoid you. But God is not some person that you can just make conditions and command him to follow. He's God. Another thing that he gets wrong in verse 25 through 27, he subtly accuses God of injustice and overkill. Look at verse 25. He feels like a dried up leaf that has just fallen off a tree or dried chaff on the ground that is being tormented by God. He says, I'm already dead. Just leave me alone. He, you accuse me unfairly and punish me maybe for sins that I committed even as a kid, verse 27. How punitive and merciless of you, God. The Hebrew in verse 27, the last verse, he, it literally says, you put my feet in chains, you watch all of my paths, and you cut the soles of my feet. Job accuses God of being over the top and unjust. Yes, it is good to lament to God, but Job is so deep in his suffering that extreme emotions are just running high and tunnel vision has taken over and all he can see is that he thinks God is against him. And it leads him to say emotional and offensive and reckless things to God that God will rebuke him for at the, for at the end of the book. But 
When Job cries out in verse 24, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He laments one of the core problems in his life. He feels as if he does not have a relationship with God anymore. To hide your face from someone is a gesture of hate and coldness. For Job, it feels as if God is ignoring him and he's lost the most important relationship that he has. And so by expressing that to God and crying out and in going to him, even if the words that he chooses aren't the best, Job is modeling for us a very important foundation of surviving suffering. It's not rejecting God and seeking relationship with him. The most important thing that Job does right is that he never gives up on God. He does not reject God, even though nothing makes sense within the bounds of his theology. Job does not reject God. But are you tempted on giving up on him? If it seemed as if God were unjust to you, if he were unkind to you, would you not just give up on him? To some of you, that might seem really obvious, like easy answer, of course, you don't give up on God. How could you? And I am so thankful if you are convinced. But to others and to myself, at times, it can be very easy to just want to run away. It is very easy to want to just abandon God. In our day and age when we are so inundated by information and constantly bombarded by worldviews and opinions and ways of thinking, our exposure to ways of thinking that are opposed to Christ or that just leave God out altogether quickly lead us to think that somehow it is possible, good, and right even to just reject God when things we experience in life don't make sense to us. So when your own experience doesn't seem reconcilable with, with Scripture, or when other people's lives don't fit in with the Word, or when people look happy even though they are in sin, or when the world offers us pleasures or f- fulfillment that we think God can't supply us Himself, we are so, so quick to say, maybe I don't need God. Maybe I can just leave Him, just reject Him. But the danger here is that when we let what we feel define reality over what God says and over who God is, then we start to think that God doesn't actually exist in reality or that he doesn't control reality. Excuse me. (coughs) Out of this thinking... When you're depressed, and when you're reading the Bible, and when it doesn't immediately make you feel better like you thought it would, that means that God can't actually help you, right? It means that that God just doesn't work. Out of that thinking, that sinful thinking, when your gut and what you feel in your heart says that gay marriage can't be a bad thing, even though the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as a sin, that means that it can't be right because you feel it inside. God has to be wrong. Out of that sinful thinking, when, we have sex with your, when you have sex with your girlfriend and when it feels good because it's pleasurable to you, that means it can't be wrong, right? And when other people seem happy worshiping another god or praying to Buddha or working hard and doing all those good things for their Catholic penance, Jesus just can't be right when he says that I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Right? And when a widely held scientific theory that claims that human beings just happen to evolve from single-celled organisms over millions and millions of years of mutations by random chance and therefore have no inherent value or dignity, even though God clearly says that he crafted mankind specially and purposefully in his image by breathing his own life into dust, that means God just can't be true, right? Because it doesn't sit well with my feelings. All these feelings and experiences and claims and ideas mean that God just needs to be rejected, right? No. 
No, no, no. Experience and feelings do not define reality. God defines reality. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our sin natures are opposed to God, trying to get us to think that it is possible to live and possible and good even to live outside of God's authority. But it doesn't work. It will always fail in the end. God, as creator and therefore owner of everything, including you and me, gets to decide moral law. He gets to decide what is good and what is bad. And because of his primacy and his ultimate authority, and because of his goodness, his perfect goodness, God can never fail and therefore can never be rejected. Even if we can't make sense of life. Even if we don't have all the answers. The issue for Job is that suffering does not fit into his theology. He knows that God is completely sovereign over all things in the world, including suffering and evil. He knows that the godless cannot stand before God. He knows that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom and right living. But he also thinks that if he can prove to God that he is innocent, that God will realize that he was wrong to allow Job to suffer, that God will repent and change his mind and remove his suffering and make things right again. Job thinks that if he justifies himself before God, God will treat him well. But it's just not true. Job's wrong expectation leads him to forcefully bring his case before God is based on a wrong understanding of him. One that God himself will rebuke Job of in the end of the book. There's a lot of mess going on here in Job's mind. But notice that Job, in the face of suffering that doesn't fit into his worldview and wrong theology about God, he does not abandon God altogether. He doesn't say, God, you can't be true or real or good because of the way that you're because the way that you're behaving doesn't fit into what I think is true. Rather, he simply says. I don't understand, so I'm going to God. I don't understand, so I'm turning to God to get answers. Job, of course, is far from perfect. He is not the stellar example of how to suffer well for us to follow. But what he does right is that when his life doesn't make sense, he goes to God. At least he turns to God instead of just writing him off and cursing him like his wife tells him to do in chapter 2. When life doesn't make sense for us as Christians, we do not give up on God. We go to Him. There is no reality that is truly apart from God. You cannot escape Him, and that's a good thing. Do not be fooled when the world tries to tell you and deceive you into thinking that it knows a better way than living life in submission to the God of the Bible. But also don't think that God's way is harder or more inferior in any way. God's way is good, and it always results in our good too. So when your heart tells you that you need self-actualization or self-love or achievements or fame or this or that to have value or to make life meaningful. Go to God, not the world. The beginning of knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord, says Proverbs. And Job teaches us that at the end of of wisdom is also the fear of the Lord. When life does not make sense, I hope that you can see that the Bible does not leave you without help. You can go to God and you can lay out your heart to Him. The rest of the book of Job will speak a lot to that struggle of seeing evil prosper and righteousness and righteous and the righteous suffer. And God could be working through all the most confused all of the confusion and pain in, in your life. And if you need proof for that, look at Jesus. God sovereignly ordained the most backward situation ever, the torture and humiliation and death of the only perfect righteous one, the the fully God, or who was fully God and fully man, 
He ordained his death to bring about, about the redemption of sinners like you and me. God has not left you to stay in your confusion and pain forever. He simply asks you today to come to him and trust him until one day he brings all the pieces together. To conclude, um, let's read verses 28 and then a little bit of, of chapter 14. He says, or Job says, Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. This feels like a very gloomy end to a passage. Man's sin problem, Job says, and his mortality only results in death. And that's very true. All people die. But Job also points to the solution in chapter 14. He says, But a man dies and is laid low. Excuse me. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail, fall from a lake, um, fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be aroused in, out of his sleep. This death is an inevitable and inescapable reality for all people. And even Job himself, though he knows he is righteous before God, will face the reality of death. But then he says something very different. Verse 13, he says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. Here, Job says something far more insightful and real than he could know. He asks God for what he knows to be the only solution possible for death. It's to be hidden and concealed until God's wrath for sin passes and then to be raised again. Resurrection. Resurrection is what Job really wants. That's the only true solution to Job's problem. And if resurrection is real, then it's worth waiting for and suffering through. It's a reality that he would wait his days of service for. In this renewal, he says that sin would be dealt with once and for all, sealed up in a bag and covered. There would be no punishment for it. And best of yet, there would be a restored personal relationship with God. That's what Job needs. Resurrection where sin is destroyed, death is no more, and Job can rest in restored intimacy and relationship with God. This is a flicker of the hope of the gospel in Job. Even what may be the oldest book of the Bible paints the story of the sinfulness of man, the inevitability of death, and the need for God's cosmic renewal through resurrection. Even Job reminds us of the promised future redemption of suffering and confusion because of Jesus Christ. What Job speaks about is real. Resurrection is a reality. And what he shows us as he points toward Christ's resurrection, that reality shows us that beauty sprouts from the ash heap of suffering. Healing springs from rivers of pain, and death brings forth new life. There will be a day when Christ returns. We will be with God forever, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. There will be no more crying and no more pain because all the former things will have passed away. Every single question we have about the confusion of life will be answered and we will be able to rest. Can you live in light of that today? Even though Job, in his descent into unfaithfulness, um, even though he begins to get a more and more emotional. He shows us the, the most important thing about his approach to God is that he doesn't reject him. In light of this passage, 
May we also be hum- may we also humbly care for those who suffer. May we trust God when we suffer. May we never reject God, even when life doesn't make sense, as we look toward resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, um, for the, the picture that we have um, of your sovereign power, of your wisdom, your ultimate wisdom and your goodness that is over and in Job's suffering, even when he doesn't understand his life. And I pray that, that uh, from his example, and even in all of the messiness um, and the self-justifying and the recklessness, uh, I pray that you would help us to see how we too can be honoring to you in the way that we live and survive suffering. I pray that you would help us to love our friends, not by pretending that we have sovereign knowledge, not pretending that we know all the solutions to all problems in the world, um, but that we could come alongside them in, in care and love. Pray that you would help us to, to not seek our own justification, but rely on Christ for it, that we'd be humble before you and simply go to you. And Father, I pray most importantly that, that we would always, every day, go to you, that we would never reject you, that we would trust you and seek to rely on you even when life doesn't make sense. And I ask that you would help us to do so because of Christ, because he came and lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, rose again from the grave. And if we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, we can be ensured resurrection and hope and rest even in the midst of all this confusion of the suffering of life. We thank you for being kind to us in Christ. I pray that our time in small groups would be beneficial for us and honoring to you. pray these things in your son's name. Amen.